to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. This is a feeling all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! Down! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. We be old school. Yeah, old school. We be old school. Yeah, old school. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. You're back to the Hit Factory. Today, Jurassic Park, 1993. Steven Spielberg, unstoppable this year. So unstoppable. I got, you want to do some by the numbers? Hit me. I'm committed to making this, by the way, before we get too deep into this, for you at home, dear listener. Mom. Mom, my Mom. listener. <laughs> my listener. I'm devoted to and committed to making this episode our briefest yet and maybe our lightest yet. Falling down was a little heavy for us both. I don't think we should show our hand. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of darkness there. I don't there. think we should, we should set that up at the beginning because... <laughs> Who knows what will happen. We may go for a while, but, you know, at least I'm trying to manifest it by setting the intention. And if we talk about Jurassic Park for two hours, so be it. We will talk about Jurassic Park for two hours. I thought you were going to say that you were committed to making this a fact-based podcast. Not at all. Uh, That is is for much better podcasters than we, people with interns who can do the research for them. We're not here for facts. Yeah, we don't have an intern. We are here maybe for facts with an X. That's very 90s. That is very 90s. We did talk about uh, a good fax machine scene being a pretty telling. High intensity fax machine scene. Good stuff. Numbers, here we go. This is 1993, again, Jurassic Park. Where are you pointing? I'm pointing all, I'm I'm moving (laughs) my hands a lot right now because I like to do it. It's like smile and dial when you get on the phone I feel like I should be looking at a whiteboard. Maybe. Okay. One of these days we'll probably get a whiteboard in here. <laughs> and we'll just have all the talking Sorry. points written. I think it's good. It's good. All right. It's kinetic. I am doing it to get some energy in the room. <laughs> it's working. Yeah. It is working. By the numbers. I'm energized by the numbers. By the numbers. And your arms. Steven Spielberg, two films within six months of each other. This film in June, June 11th, 1993 to be exact, in December... Summer blockbuster. Summer blockbuster. In December, Schindler's List. Yeah. Cold, dark, somber. Nice Christmas movie. Did he release it on the day of Christ's birth? That would be a really good move, but I don't know for certain. But could not be, I think, two more different movies from the same director. Wild times. But... Highly skilled, this man. Amazingly skilled. What a guy. An amazing talent. Still is to this day. What a guy. What a guy. This movie, Jurassic Park, along with Schindler's List, cleaned the fuck up at the Oscars the following year in March. Um, Between the two of them won 10 total awards. 
I would imagine that this one was mostly for technical it is. awards. It, it won most of the technical awards. It took home the uh, Best Visual Effects Award between Stan Winston and Phil Tippett, two uh, industry sort of special effects mavens who came together to make uh, some groundbreaking visual effects here, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also... Uh, won both the sound awards too, best sound and the then best sound sonic editing. Landscape in this movie is unparalleled. It's unbelievable. But so the the awards became something else later on, and to this day, I think are now best sound editing and best sound mixing, hmm. uh, which is weird. I don't the, the distinction between the two I think is lost on a lot of people. Um, I actually kind of like the sound effects editing and sound overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it won. Like, I just like the sound of your movie. Right. You get an award. This movie sounds good. Maybe yeah. maybe it's for like the best pitch for a movie where mm-hmm. you just tell somebody what your movie's about. And like, that sounds pretty good. Yep. Yep. An elevator pitch. You know, my grandfather always had the best pitch for movies like this. He, I would ask him, you know, oh, what's that movie about? And he would say uh, two hours. And that was the... Is this one actually two hours? This one's just over two hours. Like it works, on the nose? It, it's like, a, it's like a, a hard, fast, like 120... Eight minutes. It's rip roaring. I would say, if I had to guess, and I didn't know any better, I would say it's about as long as Phone Booth. <laughs> I think Phone Booth is shorter. <laughs> I know. I'm telling you, that's how it feels. It feels like a Phone Booth length. Got it. It, <laughs> it moves so quickly yes. that I'm surprised that it's longer than Joel Schumacher's Phone Booth. That's what I'm saying. That is that is your litmus for the pacing of all films. Yours is, is it better than Heat? Mine is, is it shorter than Phone Booth? I think those are two really good scorecards. That's totally fair. It's like when I measure book length against the pearl by yes. John Steinbeck, right? <laughs> how many how many pearls fit in this book? How many pearls? This Howard Zinn book is eight pearls long. Bless that man. He made <laughs> a lot of book reports happen in my time. God bless. <laughs> Thank you, the pearl. But so, yes, three awards taken by Jurassic Park. And then Schindler's List, of course, taking uh, seven of them, including the big awards that year. Best Picture... Uh, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay for Steven Zalian. It won Best Cinematography, uh, Film Editing, Art Direction. And then, of course, John Williams won Best Score for Schindler's List. Although, uh, this one is up there, too, in terms of just, like, perfunctory, like, classic John Williams scores. Definitely. It's rompin'. I think the distinction between... Not to say that the Jurassic Park score isn't brilliant and doesn't add to a lot of why people love this movie so much, whether they realize it or not. But the Schindler's List score is very singular. I guess we're going to have to watch Schindler's List at some point, although I don't know if we'll get through both the viewing and the recording of a podcast on that without just both breaking into sobs. not going to happen. Jurassic Park. The first thing we should talk about is, of course, just the special effects, the, the dinosaur effects, as done by Stan Winston, Phil Tippett, and crew. Seamless integration in this movie of uh, CGI and digital effects on top of like practical uh, animatronics. I mean, not even just, I mean, yes, on top of in a lot of scenes, if you think of like literally the T-Rex scene is like the T-Rex CGI'd on top of a an actual squashed Ford Explorer and he's stomping on it. Right. But also interspersed, right? Like cut frame between frames of an animatronic close up. You're seeing all of the detail of the skin and the eyes and the snorting, the breath, and then pulled back far away where you can see all of the kinetic body movements 
that feel so corporeal. Even in 1993, watching it in 2020, even 1993, I mean, you can really, you can set the CGI work here apart from anything else contemporary to it. The Captain Christian video that we watched, yes. which you we'll should plug. We will probably link to this video. Um, YouTuber named Captain Christian makes a lot of really great videos. Did one specifically on Jurassic Park and its integration of digital and practical effects. Uh, it is, it's wild. It's really well done. We'll, we'll put it in the show description. But he mentions the thousands of man hours done to, you know, study the movements of elephants, of birds, of like all of the paleo, paleo, Paleontological. 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 Jesus. That's going to be fun. Zoological, we can say, if you want to say. Paleontological that. research that was done to make you see a dinosaur moving about on a movie screen for the first time in your fucking life, probably, mixed in with real shots of people and spaces. You don't it, You don't miss a beat. Right. You never but question it. You never question it. But the at the same thing. time, you are moved and stunned by it it's all just absolutely breathtaking and yes the captain christian video talks about just how many hours um are put into like you said the paleontological research and and you landed that one i got it you got it paleontological but there's a focus on yes not just like the the biological kind of points of familiarity but also integrating the two things in a way that like you said gives you a corporeal sense of the size and weight and feel of a thing and then combines it with the CGI, right? Like the one that you mentioned, the the sort of steam coming out of like uh, the nostrils of the T-Rex, but also the one that I pointed out to you while we watched it this last time where uh, the pupil dilates on the T-Rex when he when the shines head comes the down and the flashlight shines into his it's eyes. It's wild. It's amazing. The details are just stunning. And you see skin and textures and you see like water like running off of them and, and you kind of see the motion and the weight and the physicality of all of them so that by the time you finally get to a CGI element, you see it and for a moment you actually have to tell yourself like, oh, this is the part where they're using CGI versus mm -hmm. this is where they're using the animatronics and the puppetry. It's amazing. I think it would be really easy to just say, oh yeah, for like the close-up shots, they did the animatronic stuff and for the wider shots, they did the CGI. That is not the recipe right, here. Right, it's not how it works. And on top of that, when you actually start to unpack how purposeful they are in their decision-making for when you see an animatronic that's being handled versus when you're seeing a digitally enhanced image. That's a whole other layer to movie making that like you could make a decision to have this cut here with this, with this, then it's CGI. And that those decisions in and of themselves are, you know, discrete, but that together they make this kinetic, totally seamless experience for the audience Absolutely. where you don't even question that you're looking at dinosaurs. No, it all feels completely lived in, completely real. And like that video suggests as well, there's a thing about um, the way that the whole film is, is executed and shot, right? In, in the choice of cinematography where everything is shot from a human perspective mm -hmm. that gives verticality and gives uh, kind of limits of vantage point to the dinosaurs, right? Like when we see the Brachiosaurus in that first scene when they first arrive uh, on the, the island, we see it from Grant and uh, Ellie's perspective, right? Like we have to actually kind of, the camera has to pan up to see 
the full size of the creature. And Mm -hmm. then when they're in the cars and the T-Rex is walking by, we just see the legs and the tail. And and it totally, and it gives you this kind of sense of scale of scale and and just a massiveness of the creature. Mm -hmm. And it makes it all more like, it feels like you are the person experiencing alongside the actors rather than sort of this uh, omniscient camera that is taking in all the shots and showing you every angle. Cause that's a way a lot of things are shot. Today, when it comes to a lot, you, know, you look at like a Marvel movie today, or even, I mean, we didn't bring this up, but Jurassic Park has spawned, what, five sequels now, a sixth on the way next year? Ooh. In pretty much every other one of these films, they started to really lean into the CGI and the digital elements of this way more, especially lately. As does every movie that's Absolutely. made these but, days. But in Jurassic World especially, you see every angle of this creature and there's no more of that sense of awe. Mm-hmm. And it's the one thing that I think people talk about when they when they try to explain why this movie, apart from all the sequels, is the one that's sort of considered a masterpiece and why the other ones cannot and, yeah. and have never lived up to its sense of grandeur and its uh, quality is that you, is that you just you lose that sense of all we can only see dinosaurs for the first time once whether you're conscious of it or not and you're not when you're watching this movie but it is sort of seeped into your viewing experience you get a sense of how much work was put into this movie not because the movie feels labored on or feels tedious. It actually feels really effortless. It feels totally effortless, but you you get a sense of the skill and the mastery, and I don't think that that's subconsciously felt in the other films. My question, realizing that we just jumped right into things, do we need to give a Jurassic Park synopsis? I don't know about this one. What if you what would you say in two sentences? How would you describe this movie? Like plot start to finish. I'll use Ian Ian Malcolm's points. God creates dinosaur god destroys dinosaur god creates man god creates man man destroys god man creates dinosaurs dinosaurs eat man woman inherits the earth i mean that is a a pretty good synopsis of this movie right like a a billionaire finds a way to genetically clone dinosaurs brings some dinosaur specialists to a park mayhem ensues people get eaten and we enjoy two hours of set piece after perfectly crafted set piece of people trying to survive dinosaur encounters and i don't want to burst the balloon here but we should say that his motivation first and foremost for doing the thing that he does with dinosaurs is to make money he wants to be the next pt barnum essentially right which is something (laughs) That we will talk about yes. in this, because there, there's a, an interesting conversation to be had about the way that John Hammond, the character as portrayed by Richard Attenborough, how he differs in the film from how from his presentation in the book, mm-hmm. which is another thing we should probably talk about before we get in. This yep. is a Michael Crichton adaptation. We missed that in By the Numbers. If we are in the 90s, we are in the Michael Crichton adaptation. Right, absolutely. He... Uh, wrote this novel. He also wrote the sequel to this novel, The Lost World, which was then developed into a 1997, 98, I think, actually, sequel, also directed by Spielberg. Along with John Grisham, which we've talked about, a Michael Crichton adaptation is a very, very 90s thing. Situates you squarely in the 1990s. Uh, But so he wrote the novel in 1990. The, The rights to the novel were optioned to Universal. Michael Crichton co-wrote the screenplay with an actual screenwriter, David Kep, 
which is how we get the version that we have on screen today that so many people know. But if we're getting right into it and moving past some of the special effects, which are probably just going to keep coming up, this movie is one that I realized coming from a novel and also being adapted by a screenwriter and a novelist, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, is a, a film that feels like it works sometimes in spite of itself from a story standpoint. Sure. One of the biggest things that I noticed is that there is almost zero character development on behalf of any of these players. Absolutely none. I even had to clarify with you that Sam Neill's character and Laura Dern's character were coupled because I had completely forgotten. It's a completely sexless couple. No indication. She mentions kids and I'm like, okay, is she mentioning kids to this guy because she is just a lady and that's what ladies talk about? Or are they sleeping together? When Samuel asked Laura Dern, you want one of those, referring to to children, she says, not that child specifically, but some breed of child, yes, Dr. Mm -hmm. Grant, in a way that feels very topical and kind of sterile and does not sound like the way that a couple would talk about Totally, they also refer to each other by their doctor names, so... They also, they never share an on-screen kiss. Nope. They hug once at the end of the movie. Uh, well, maybe twice at the beginning of the movie after they realize that Hammond is going to give them a fuck ton of money. But really, their relationship is not central to understanding or feeling any sort of emotions that this movie needs you to feel anyway. Right. So it's not, it's like, I don't care. A- again. Don't develop their relationship. Again, the Spend movie. Spend more time on the dinosaurs. The movie rips, but none of these characters have any level of dynamicism to them save for maybe two of them and, Who? and well you say? we get two hours worth of mayhem destruction and awesome technical feats in order to let alan grant sam neill's character uh learn to love children mm-hmm. and also for richard attenborough playing john hammond to learn that he is a proud man and hubris will be his end if he doesn't uh, change and start caring about human life I would say that the character that has the most space for us to understand who he is, is Jeff Goldblum's character. Absolutely. And they make a point of this, both in the novel and in the the film, that he is sort of the intellectual core of the movie that has, has the themes already up here in his brain. He, I mean, he more or less states the themes of the movie outright at the beginning. Every single line that he has in this movie, which... I realized in watching it this last time, not a whole lot of lines. He doesn't say a lot, but when he says it, he you knocks are, it out of the park. You're fucking listening. Every line that he has is meaningful in some way, not only to signal to us who he is, but also to present us on a Goldblum silver platter with the themes for us to ponder. Goldblum is probably the most Goldblum he has ever Goldblumed. In this film, at least... Prior to this... Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, he's in a handful of things before this film. Namely, the ones I think of right off the top of my head, like he has a a brief cameo in Death Wish, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the one with Veronica Cartwright and Donald Sutherland. And of course, The Fly. And he's in The Fly. But in none of those movies does Jeff Goldblum feel like the version of himself that is and has become, I guess, Jeff Goldblum's sort of public persona that he presents all over the world whenever he is just being himself. Totally. And I feel like Ian Malcolm is really just an extension of who Jeff Goldblum is as a person. I commented this to you when we were watching. I said something like, 
I actually don't feel like these are his real lines as they were written. I think he just said I what he wanted he, to like, say. I think he like said what he wanted to say. In a lot of cases, I think they probably gave him some like decent shit to work with. And then he just like gold bloomed it. You got me thinking about what Ian Malcolm's dialogue would look like on the page versus what Jeff Goldblum was doing with it. I could not see those things written as clear, concise sentences nope. on a white page. Definitely not. Especially when you look at the rest of the dialogue in this movie. Right. Everything and, else is very formal. A lot yes, of it is, is expository. Be, and, he's supposed to be singular. So you can argue like, well, they give him a little bit more because he's supposed to stand out in a certain way. He's supposed to be an intellectual. So they give him like intellectual sounding lines. But I guarantee you, Goldblum just wrote a lot of those on the just spot. With it. And he definitely wrote in the stutters. All the stutters. The part when he is explaining chaos theory to Laura Dern, Ellie Sattler, in the car where he is stroking her hand and like dropping water droplets down it. Holding your breath the whole time. Also, there's no way to write that in a compelling way. Maybe it was written very poorly, and maybe it is in the script, but the way that he does it makes it compelling, captivating. He has that smarmy flirtatiousness that is also still very welcome because he's kind of hot and like mysterious and... He's it's, just doing a lot. It's brilliant. Also, we have to mention his laugh uh, on board the helicopter at the beginning. We'll probably at this point, when I do some editing, throw in the remix edition of that laugh. But he's not the only player in this that is doing really good work either. You, on this watch, really, really loved Bob Peck as Robert Muldoon, the kind of game hunter who's the raptor expert. He's always been one of my favorite characters. Like, even watching this as a child, I was like, oh, this guy's what's up. But watching it this last time, I just felt like he was perfectly cast. He just looks good in the role. He sounds good in the role. Every word out of his mouth is so assured. He speaks and you're like, oh yeah, I'd hand my life over to this guy in a heartbeat. What he reminds me most of is honestly Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive, where he's kind of a man of profound self-seriousness amidst a bunch of kind of bumbling buffoons. And not to say that these other people <laughs> aren't also doing great work. I think Wayne Knight does an excellent job with the little bit he's given as mm -hmm. Dennis Nedry. Samuel Jackson is in here doing some iconic shit as just always. barely hanging on to a cigarette every time. Always. And it's just talking out of the side of his mouth. But Bob Peck as Muldoon is always like wide-eyed and kind of like clenched-jawed, overly serious, to the point of almost it being kind of comic if you are not taking it seriously but he, but he he manages to transcend any level of irony with it where it just feels real it is completely unironic that is hard to do in that it's movie so hard let's to admit do. that i just was like so taken by his performance this this go round i was just like yeah he's the only guy i want to listen to in that movie yeah. bob peck spielberg does a, there's a, a a classic image of goldblum it has adorned many an Etsy coffee mug. It has, yes. It was my PC background at a certain point in time. There's a uh, an artist's oil painting rendition of him sort of strewn 
about this table. His shirt is open. He's kind of sweaty, a little bloody, bandaged up. The art history term is that he's on repose. E-N repose. En repose. En repose. And I actually, I, I was looking at it this time, and I think they have him on like a chaise lounge or something. <laughs> like They might as well, right? Is it crushed velvet or something? It, it, I looked and I was like, there's a rolled pillow Why here. Why is Barry he's... White playing behind all of these? <laughs> you pointed out to me, Carly, that this is uh, reminiscent of a very specific piece of iconography and, and, and image in art history. In the Sistine Chapel. Right. On the Sistine Chapel in... The creation of Adam, Michelangelo's creation of Adam. There's the very famous part where God is sort of, you know, reaching out with his mighty hand, Mm -hmm. pointing towards Adam. And Adam is kind of fecklessly raising his limp wrist up to meet the hand of God. I thought about it a little bit differently this time because it was the first time that I really concretely made that connection. He represents ideal man, right? Man is supposed to be God-fearing. That, I think, is a very purposeful imposition of that image onto the character of Ian Malcolm because he really is the only one who has the right amount of penitence and, you know, reverence and fear of these creatures and of God's creative capacities. Right. He even, in one of his probably best stutter spoken moments uh, over some Chilean sea bass. Says as much, right? He yes. says, uh, Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I had feared. Yeah, I know. They're a lot worse. Staggering. Staggering. Something like Staggering. 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 It's, it's lovely. It's staggering. We've said already that the movie kind of works in spite of itself because there's not a ton of character development. Most of these these actors doing great work, but in the service of one-dimensional characters. The narrative also kind of does the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, it is like the Winchester mansion of plots in that there are several doors and hallways that lead to nowhere. Totally. We see this a lot. Just left sort of dangling over. Right. And we talked about this point where I remember us having the conversation after watching the movie, like, what is the significance of the sick Triceratops? Right. (laughs) What's the significance of the animals breeding in the wild? When none of those things are really followed through in any capacity except to add a little bit of seasoning to the narrative. And... And, and I mean, we're seasoned. Like, we are seasoned. It's good stuff. It also opens up some sequels, but that's a thing that surely they were thinking about. But it feels a lot like that is what those moments do. The, the sick Triceratops happens right around like 30, 40 minutes into the film and really only serves as a plot condition in order to separate the group. Yep. It gets Ellie back to the command center and gets Malcolm, Grant, and the kids along with the lawyer, Gennaro, continuing, continuing on, the, on tour. the tour. And that is all it serves. I would counter slightly and say that it does two small things in my mind in addition to that. One, when Ellie is remarking, oh, this isn't West Indian Violet, is it? And the you know nameless, faceless Jurassic Park employee says, right. yeah, it's poisonous or something, but like they don't eat it or something. It's like, there, but there's no like, way they touch it. We know they don't eat it. That, to me, serves to further the understanding that the people who are running this facility are, one, 
inept to a certain degree, <laughs> two, filled with extreme hubris in the face of even the smallest details, right? Like, why the fuck do you need a poisonous plant there? You don't. And then also just, I think, inept, an insane amount of hubris, and also just like tells you more about their carelessness that then speaks to later issues that we encounter. Mm. That's like a small thing that I think that does. And maybe I'm reading too much into no, it. No, I but think that that's actually a really good read because when I watched it, and I have seen this movie- Too many times. Dozens of times. I never gathered that part of it. Or or at this point, it has felt like just kind of a part of the movie. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying makes sense. And I, I actually really like that interpretation of a few things that qualify it because it, it doesn't necessarily feel like a thing that needs to be in the movie for any other reason beyond it just fleshes out a little bit more of their like i said their ineptitude their hubris and their carelessness and then the other thing that i think that scene does is really it's just another moment for them to flex on the animatronics oh that the triceratops is completely dumbfoundingly beautiful it's in, gorgeous in but But what that does isn't just a moment for them to say, look at all this mastery. But that, to me, then informs the way I see the rest of the dinosaurs that I encounter in the movie. Because this is the only one we spend that much time with that close up. And so whether you're realizing it or not, there was this kind of like setting the visual space and kind of like framework that I understand and view these dinosaurs in. And it does that so successfully that for the rest of the film, it's the only thing you fixate on. I pointed this out and it's a thing that I always see after it was pointed out to me in the centerpiece of the film, the T-Rex attack. There is one of the most startling continuity errors I have ever seen in a film. And if you have not noticed this by now in your viewing of Jurassic Park, dear listener. Mom. Mom, I am sorry. You will notice that the T-Rex breaks through the now de-electrified fence. Where the goat once was. Where the goat once was. Walks out betwixt the two vehicles. Attacks the children's car. Flips the vehicle over. Grant runs to save them. Malcolm gets attacked. Gennaro gets eaten, et cetera, et cetera. Throughout all of this, we sort of stay in that same proximity where the car is flipped and then the T-Rex returns and knocks the, the car as well as Grant and Lex off the edge of what is now sort of like a sheer concrete walled sort of cliff face. But is the forest that he came from. It is the exact spot where the T-Rex once walked out of. And then they even return to that space And in a moment of searching, Muldoon and Ellie look over and peer over the edge of the fence and then walk down to the lower level where the wreckage has has finally landed out of a tree. It's so noticeable. And yet, after watching it, like I said, a dozen times, one, I don't care. And two, if I turn off my brain long enough, I actually don't notice. I've seen that movie 10 times, not as many times as you, but it was only on this last time that I noticed it, and it's only because you told me about it. If you hadn't said anything, I 1,000% wouldn't have noticed it. I am here to ruin movies for people. That's what I do. I mean, yeah, that sucked. It wasn't a cool (laughs) moment. It was not cool. But again, it's one of those moments where we talk about these set pieces and the sheer craftsmanship of this thing superseding every other element of this movie. And you're just like, 
Yeah, I don't care that that's not the forest anymore. I want it to be a sheer drop because that is what this action sequence needs. Because it makes it badass. It does. And because after that set piece, we just go to another one. This movie is really from start to finish, just a, a collection of thrilling set pieces just sort of uh, stitched together. Yeah, and it's not exhausting either. I've certainly seen plenty of action thriller movies where there are set pieces stacked one right after the other and you just feel like you're busting through walls every time it's not a it's not a lord of the rings or a john wick three right and even with john wick you kind of like dismiss how bludgeoned you are by all of the set pieces because they're so fucking cool and keanu is just like amazing but yeah definitely like john wick i was thinking about this i was thinking about how john wick is the only other movie where i would liken the amount and the intensity of the set pieces and the frequency at which they come to this movie, there is a briskness. And I think because you are so enwrapped by the visual dynamism and just like all of the intricacies that are happening, it doesn't feel like you're really struggling through it. You don't feel beaten over the head by the end of the movie. No, and I, I think I use this term exactly after we watched it. It plays like a really compelling, riveting piece of music. You, you hear it and it's like hearing one of your favorite records spinning again and again. It just is always good. I love this movie. We should take a brief moment to talk about the sonic landscape of this movie because I don't... Obviously, John Williams scoring any movie, like, done. You're in it to win it. You can whistle this thing and, and I yes, it, it, everyone knows the like score. Like every Clark. other score that he's done, right? Um, and he just, the man knows how to use sound to engender emotions. Like when you think about what he is doing, he is literally taking a sound that he has stitched together to make molecules in your brain do a thing so that you feel a thing. And there's never been anyone quite like him. And I don't think there ever will be again. Like John Williams is the absolute king of cinematic scoring and just music. He's, he's phenomenal. He's an absolute legend. On top of that, we should talk about briefly about, so it is his music and the way that he ratchets intensity and he quiets things during certain moments. But then also all of the other sound effects that are a part of this movie that are stitched at oftentimes stitched into the music, right? There are so many instances where the thumping of the feet of the T-Rex or another dinosaur is like, you know, a timpani almost like with the music itself. So I have a really interesting anecdote about this. That is one of the most memorable things that's ever happened to me cinematically. I was going to maybe wait till the end, but I'll just do this now and shout out to my beautiful mother for taking me to this movie at the age of three. I distinctly remember being in the movie theater and a manager or member of the staff from the movie theater coming to the front before the film started and informing the audience that the film used a new sort of groundbreaking cinematic sound landscape and cinematic sound technology that would create a more riveting and more subjective kind of sound experience. And I remember him distinctly saying, you will at times during this movie feel the walls and probably feel your seat rattling. Don't be alarmed, that is intentional. And he was right. You feel every bit of that, like in your stomach and in your bones. 
no matter how many times you see it, the sound is the thing that engenders just such a profound response. Mm -hmm. And that subjectivity of like situating you in the experience, which is happening visually as well, right? Because everything's being shot from the ground. But then the sound is really situating you in that same place as well. The sound in this movie is just wild. And all the work that they did to come up with the calls and responses of the raptors. And you never once question it. You're not ever sitting there thinking, that's not what a raptor sounds like. They make it so compelling. And what's interesting is how much they actually steal from the current spectrum of fauna, I guess we'll call it. The T-Rex and the Dilophosaurus and all these things, like you can hear them if you listen. They used Bengal tiger growls. Mm -hmm. They used elephant trumpets for part of the the T-Rex roar. For the Dilophosaurus, they very clearly use a rattlesnake at one point yeah. when, his, when his kind of frills totally. come out before he spits. But they also use like a howler monkey sound. And they use all kinds of things and blend them and mix them into these wholly unique and now kind of iconic sounds for these dinosaurs. Like that sort of trumpeting sound of like the Velociraptor calling the other Velociraptors in the kitchen scene is what a Velociraptor sounds like. Which is fascinating because if we're moving on here... This movie gets almost everything wrong about dinosaurs. Please. But continue. Well, you know, a lot has advanced in the field of paleontology since 1993. Yeah. Michael Crichton himself was working off of things I think that worked better dramatically for his his novel than necessarily like the factual elements of this. Sure. And Spielberg kind of ran with that too. Like the Dilophosaurus is much larger than it is portrayed in this film, but they shrink it in order to avoid audiences getting confused between a Dilophosaurus and a Velociraptor. And also so he could fit in the car. So he could fit in the car. Velociraptors also are significantly smaller than like the six foot tall, 10 foot long man sized things that they are in the movie. Like they are three feet long and covered in feathers, presumably like based on on fossils that we have in the record now. My point is with each successive version of this movie, what's amazing is that now for almost 30 years, we have just continued to riff on what the dinosaurs looked like in Jurassic Park in the collective sort of cultural consciousness, that is what raptors look like. That is what Dilophosaurus, Dilophosauri mm -hmm. look like. That is what all of these creatures look and sound like to a large portion of the American population, by the world totally. at large. I think that there's probably an article like once a week from like Nat Geo or some other place that talks about something that Jurassic Park got wrong about dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I don't really care. Like, this is what dinosaurs look like to me. Well, and I do think, you know, that speaks to the kind of laziness on the part of current movie makers who just kind of want to co-opt the dinosaur work that Spielberg and his team right. did in the 90s and not actually, like, advance it further because why do that? Like, the audience isn't demanding it, right? This movie, and this movie inspired so many other people to undertake much more uh, ambitious projects than, than they ever would have otherwise. You know, you, you think about this movie in 93, sort of being a catalyst for someone like a Peter Jackson to mm -hmm. pursue The Lord of the Rings and totally. the technical uh, accomplishments of those movies. You know, I, there's sort of on record a relationship between Kubrick and Spielberg developing as a result of some of these films. And it eventually convinced Kubrick to continue pursuing development of AI, mm. which Spielberg eventually directed after Kubrick passed away. Right. It also inspired, <laughs> on the other side of the coin... Another 1993 dinosaur film called Carnosaur. Oh, boy. Yeah. 
It was released a month prior to this film. Ironically enough, stars Diane Ladd, mother of Laura Dern. And uh, It's like too awful to sound real because you're just like, how can well, this be? The film is adapted from a novel that came out several years before Jurassic Park did. That is about a sort of deranged scientist trying to wipe out the human population and replace them with dinosaurs. Totally. The effects are... From the little bit that I've I've seen of this movie in trailers and and quick YouTube videos, got awful. There's no way they could be good if you think about how many man hours went into creating the effects of Jurassic Park and this one, this other movie, Carnosaur or whatever, was fast tracked to just like ride on the coattails of like the marketing noise that Jurassic Park was making. It was exactly that. It was it was a film that was rushed through development on, you know, a sub million dollar budget uh, in order to capitalize on the absolutely massive marketing campaign for Jurassic Park mm-hmm. as the other dinosaur movie. Yep. There's even a line in the trailer for this film that I assume is in the final theatrical version, where Diane Ladd's character is explaining her idea of populating the world with dinosaurs and a character who she has like beaten and subdued and tied up or whatever says something like, it's a hell of a story. Would make a a great great theme theme park. park. And you're just like, oh, "Oh, this is so shameless. (laughs) This is so shameless. Well, Uh, they made some money off of it, so good for them. Maybe we'll... We'll watch Carnosaur at some point. We might. One of the things we should talk about as it pertains to current events, Universal and also Disney are kind of in the process of their own troubles with a theme park opening. Well, okay, let's just back up for a second. The refrain that everyone comes back to when they watch the Jurassic Park movies, movie, and then remark on the fact that there are sequels is, I can't even believe there were sequels. Like, why would the theme park even continue to be a thing Right. if dinosaurs fucking killed a bunch of people? Right. After people weigh uh, the dangers involved in that, they would stay away. I think we've seen in the news in the last week that that is unequivocally bullshit. But isn't it wild that f- that the, the thing we've been telling ourselves for the last 30 years each time a subsequent Jurassic Park movie has come out, it's like, oh, I'm going to watch this because like I'm here for the show. But like, there's no way in real life, and in real life is the operative, operative phrase here, that people would go back to a theme park when they knew that there was the possibility of, of them dying. Right. And fast track to 2020. Fast track to 2020. <laughs> we'll explain some details here. Uh, Florida is not doing well right now in terms of its response to the coronavirus. Governor Ron DeSantis has not been doing much to fix it. I think as of the recording today, they recorded over 15,000 cases. Which is the highest number of cases reported in a day of any state to date. To date, even more so than New York at its at its, at peak. its peak. And by the time so this finally goes live, and you, dear listener, mom, hear this, it could potentially be worse. Mm -hmm. In spite of that, in the middle of all of this, there's been a lot of hubbub and a lot of very justified backlash towards a lot of theme parks that are opening up in Florida right now. Legoland and Universal Studios have been open for the better part of a month already. Gross. And Disney uh, just opened on Saturday the 11th. Disney World. Disney World, right? Not Disneyland in California. That's not happening. But... Disney Disney World is open and which is like it's like seven parks or something like it's a right. massive 
massive expanse. And, and two of them are open at the moment. There's like Great Adventure and like the Animal Encounter or whatever it's called. It's sick. But but a, a significant portion of the park is open. People are there. People are in the park in mass. And uh, in the lead up to this, Disney has produced some of the most frighteningly dystopian propaganda I have ever seen. We'll probably play audio from it at some point about here. We definitely need to. I'm really happy to be wearing this again. I feel safe because Disney has gone above and beyond what they needed to do. My son is the most important thing to me, but I'm comfortable and confident because I do see the work that we're putting in to make everybody feel safe. I feel a deep amount of sympathy for the people who have to totally. be a part of the creation of this propaganda. And most of these employees are in a union and there's only so much that a union can do in these situations, right? And Disney has this country and so many others by the balls in terms of its economic power and like how much money that corporation has and can go to battle with. And at the end of the day, that the thing that we care about right now is opening these parks up so that we don't have to lose money and shut them down instead of maybe like just spending that money to take care of your employees and, oh, I don't know, Disney's got trillions of fucking dollars. Like, why don't they open a fucking COVID research lab somewhere? Like, right. the, what? Ep the Epcot Center should be like... What are we doing? What, like, Tomorrowland should be researching COVID vaccines right now. Well, and here's an interesting thing as it pertains to Jurassic Park. John Hammond, Richard Attenborough's character, in the novel is somebody who is a fervent, blood-sucking, uh, completely sociopathic capitalist. By the end of the novel, he does not come around. To his last breath, he is considering ways to correct the errors that he made that led to death to make sure that he can still capitalize on this theme park and on the scientific creation uh, that he has succeeded in achieving. Well, the lawyer says, and I'm sure a real lawyer said this in real life at some point, the first time he sees the dinosaur, he says, we're going to make so much money or we're gonna something like that. We're going to make place. a fortune with this place. But so here's the interesting thing. Spielberg was the person who made the call to radically alter John Hammond's arc in the film. Mm -hmm. Because Spielberg felt a kinship to John Hammond and his uh, sort of obsessive vision and desire to be a great showman. Mm. And so he made this kind of creative arc for John Hammond, where he sort of resolutely shuns his park and, and the, the dangers of it, but that he has a little bit of, of you, you garner some sympathy for him because he, he just wanted to give people something real that they could feel and touch, he says. That is not the way things work in real life, clearly we've seen here. And, yeah. and, and if it was real, we have seen that actually Michael Crichton hit the nail on the fucking head in the novel, which is all of these worms are coming out and demanding that people come back to their jobs in these parks, that people come back and buy tickets to these parks and bunch up. There are photos already from the opening of this park that are really, really horrifying. But like, here's the thing, like we're not demanding it. People are willingly and enthusiastically 
going back to these right. parks. And that's the thing. That's is- the wild thing. We are creating the opportunity for them to do so. And we are drumming up excitement by making bullshit propaganda about it. And people are it. genuinely excited to go. And it is sickening. Oh my God. The comments on like the post, the social posts about like, we're reopening the park and that that terrible movie clip of all of the employees wearing masks just saying how happy they were to be back at Disneyland. I, I went through a... There was a tailspin involved in me reading the comments of all the people trying to defend the park's reopening well, in the replies defend, on Twitter. But just like blindly cheer and like hurrah and and like spout excitement about going back to the park. Right. And you almost wonder if like some of these people are just like corporate shills who are like accounts made by Disney. Like not not above a, a you know a corporate uh, entity to ever get on social media and fake names and accounts and users. Like people do this on Reddit all the time totally. too. Totally. I do think there are some yahoos that are genuinely excited to go back to a fucking theme Agreed. park. Agreed. And they're the they're in line right now in the fucking rain, mind you. Like there yeah. there was, you know, it was not nice weather this week in Florida either and yet people still endured and decided to go out and uh, line up for Splash Mountain. So really the conceit that we've all had for years that we use as a point of dismissal for Jurassic Park and how unrealistic it would be for patrons to want to go to a park when there is the chance of them dying is like... Categorically false. Categorically false. It is is a delusion to think that we would be smart enough to avoid something that could kill us. And uh, and it makes all the, the subsequent sequels to Jurassic Park seem pretty plausible. Totally probable. 1,000% would and are happening. It's almost too much. Yeah. And, and It's a lot. Yeah. Sorry to bum you out at the end of a, a episode about uh, just happy, joyous, and free kind of film. You've got to stay awake, people. <laughs> Keep your eyes open. And I think that's that's really all we've got today. We should say we love Jurassic Park. So good. We don't want you to go to Disney World. Don't go to Disney World. And that's really the takeaway today. That's the takeaway. Stay home. Watch 90s movies. Stay home. Watch 90s movies. Lament about what's happening in Florida and... And keep listening to Hit Factory. Keep listening to Hit Factory. Yeah, we're going to be here giving you more of these episodes throughout quarantine and beyond. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Hit Factory Pod. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We love you all. Mom. The old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Been getting that money for a girl, sweet honey. Got me some roses and a little bling. I knocked on her door, she said, what you waiting for? I heard you was looking for a king. Been climbing the pyramid, her steps made of green. I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer to my little...